Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Connor Beaton. Connor is a dear friend of mine, made more dear because of the very deep men's work that we did together. And so for the men out there listening and for the women who have men in their lives that they love, I think that you'll get a tremendous amount of value in this episode. We go deep on processes of individuation. We go deep on uh, transmuting shame. We go uh, into a variety of topics as it relates to um, being a man in today's day and age. And you know, some of the primal patterning and blueprints that I think are still relevant in our time, some of the ways in which um, we can utilize um, community for our great benefit, and how to basically be a man that lives on purpose. And so I think this is really, really one of the conversations I've, I've enjoyed I'd, I'd actually love your feedback because if if this is something that you do enjoy I, I may go into doing a series around um, what it means to be a man and masculinity in the 21st century if you do enjoy the show I'd love 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 uh, rating and review on iTunes it helps me get great guests and build the community and you as always can uh, let, let us know your thoughts tag me at Michael trainer on Instagram at man talks and let uh, myself and Connor know what you thought. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Connor Beaton. All right, I am here with my man, Connor Beaton. Connor, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, brother, thank you so much for having me. So for context, uh, Connor and I met actually, it must be probably about three or four years ago now, Uh, we went up to Oregon and I had listened to the work of Robert Augustus Masters uh, on your podcast. I actually discovered him randomly uh, on the Man Talks podcast. Listened to the episode and felt so called at that period in life mm-hmm. that I signed up for his next uh, men's work uh, retreat, which was a very intimate retreat. And Connor and I were both there. And so we got to know each other, I would say, pretty intimately in that, in that, in that weekend. And you obviously, for those who don't know you, uh, focus and have been focused for quite some time on, on really providing a space for men to elevate, for lack of a better term, on, on really deep uh, men's work. And that has been such a, a huge and pivotal element of my life uh, for context for those listening. You know, part of the reason many of you know the story of my father, part of the reason our, 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 of our, for our closeness is when I was in my dark night of the soul, my dad uh, flew out and staffed my weekend with the Mankind Project. Um, and that was a ritual rebirth that w- led to a sea change in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to start by asking you, Connor, you know, I feel like right now, you know, we're recording amidst a pandemic. I feel like a lot of people are questioning their identity, their purpose. Um, And, you know, a lot of men, I think, are struggling with, you know, maybe they have kids in the house and they've never, you know, they're not going off to the office. I feel like in general, I think in general, there is a crisis as it relates to masculinity in terms of our day and age, uh, given the lack of processes of individuation. 
but I think specifically right now, it's a really wonderful time to have this conversation. Mm. Uh, what are you, what are you finding in, in your listening, if you will, because you, you have a community of a great number of men that are, that are communicating with you frequently, which I'm a part of, what are you finding to be some of the main issues that are arising at this point in time as it relates to men and some of their deep concerns? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very potent question with many uh, tendrils or branches that, that we could certainly go down. But I think more, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take the approach of trying to make it very time specific, you know, with the situations that we're dealing with right now. And so I think one of the challenges that a lot of men have always faced is this idea of, of masculine isolation, male, male isolation, and that we have created this culture where men are largely promoted and validated and encouraged to create lives, lives where they are largely alone that they should face their problems alone, that they should, you know, raise their family alone, that they should have their career. I mean, a lot of the sayings that we have, right, it's lonely at the top. Um, but that's where men are expected to go is to the top. And so we, we sort of have, we've sort of connected our masculine identity as a collective with this concept of being alone and being isolated. And that is permeating our culture right now. And there, that, is, that is certainly affecting a lot of people out there. So a, a lot of the men that I work with, a lot of the men that I interact with, um, especially right now and, and during these times, they are, they're, they're dealing with these masculine concepts. So one of the things I'm going to talk about is the, the one rule of men. And I talk about this quite a bit because the one rule of men is, is very similar to Fight Club. So if anybody's watched Fight Club, uh, you know, they'll have seen Edward Norton's character and Tyler Durden, uh, Brad Pitt's character, you know, create this underground fighting club to awaken the masculine, to awaken the warrior within them. And, and that whole movie is actually just about masculinity, the, the entire thing. It's one of the most profound movies about masculinity. Um, but in there, they talk about the one rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, right? That's the, that's the first rule and the only rule. And for most men, the one rule of men is that you don't talk about what it's like to be a man. You don't talk about what it's like to be a man who's lost a job or what it's like to be a man who's, you know, fucked up in his relationship and been unfaithful or cheated or had an emotional affair. You don't talk about what it's like to be a man who's having health issues or mental health issues. You just don't talk about these things. And, and because of that, um, there is an incredible amount of suffering that men are experiencing in silence. And we adopt this, right? In mainstream, in mainstream media, we adopt this uh, in, in mainstream masculine culture, and there's a big push for it oftentimes. And it's something that, that I see a lot of men not only struggling with, but I see their families struggling with it. I see their businesses struggling with it. And so, you know, in, in this time of the pandemic, I think what's been happening is one of the main things that I've been talking about is that isolation equals amplification. And so when we isolate ourselves, we amplify what's already existing within us. And so that can be 
uh, our coping mechanisms, our addictive behaviors, right? To pornography, to smoking weed, to drinking alcohol, to, you know, sitting around and binge watching entire seasons of, I mean, whatever, the office and, and eating bags of popcorn every single night and potato chips. So when we are isolated, we amplify the, the pain that we have that's undealt with. We amplify our boredom. We amplify our loneliness. And I think the other thing that I'll just drop in and, and then I'll pause that so we can sort of unpack some of these concepts uh, is, is that a lot of men are really battling uh, with the reality that isolation also results in a sense of, of impotence and not just, not just a sense of sexual impotence while that can often happen, but a, uh, an emotional impotence, a, a spiritual impotence and emptiness that, that is really permeating a lot of, of men in our lives. And I mean, I have women reaching out constantly on a, on a daily and weekly basis asking, how can I help, you know, my husband, my boyfriend, my brother, my, you know, my father, who is really struggling and suffering, refuses to get help, has isolated himself, you know, doesn't have many good friends, doesn't have people to talk to. So this, this issue is, is really, um, it has really come about in, in many ways because of the culture uh, that we that we've formed over the last couple hundred years. It's been amplified by social media, where we can be hyper connected online, but very isolated in person. And so there's sort of this false dichotomy, this false sense of connectivity that we have, uh, where people can stay connected. Right, men can stay connected with one another and have Zoom meetings and message each other on Instagram, but still feel deeply alone. Um, and I can't remember who said it exactly, but there, there's a great quote, something along the lines of like the, the, the worst feel, one of the worst feelings in the world is, is to be with someone you love and still feel alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really one of the main challenges that a lot of men are, are facing is that they are going through life, um, with this, with holding on to this advocacy for the lone wolf mentality, right? That you should deal with your shit by yourself. And it's really crippling a lot of men, a lot of men's work, their purpose, their passion, uh, their relationships specifically, their families are struggling with it. And, you know, I think that there's, there's really a rise in, you know, mental health issues when it comes to men in the masculine that are starting to emerge. And I mean, even during this pandemic, we've seen a, a huge spike in domestic violence, which is, you know, largely men. We've seen a, another spike of suicides, which is largely men. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of this does come back to isolation. And I, I, I hope that I'm not being so grim. I don't want to make it sound like, like, you know, we as men are screwed or like in this horrendous place. But we do see the, the markers, the societal markers of male success starting to plummet, right? Less men are graduating from college. Uh, you know, more men are addicted more than ever before. Um, more men are committing suicide than ever before. And so there, there are some very real things. And you don't have to walk very far out in your culture, out in your, your environment to see men that are, that are struggling. And a lot of this really stems from this idea that we have to face our own darkness, our own shame, our own pain, our own shadow by ourselves. And that's just not the way that it's worked for generations for thousands of years that is not the way that it has worked but in our modern culture and society we have started to isolate men more and more and more because we've realized that when men band together it's actually quite potent 
And so, and, and there is a really extraordinary form of healing that can show up in that space when the right men are getting together, right? I think, again, another, another good quote is, all it takes for evil to win is for good men to do nothing. And, and how do you get those good men to do nothing? You isolate them, right? You separate them from one another. And so I know I just said it a lot. <laughs> so maybe I'll, I'll pause there and, and, uh, and we, can, we can sort of piece some of those things apart. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I, I, I resonate very much with what you just shared. I feel like there's, you know, on a, I'll go macro and then micro, and then I think we can go kind of uh, make it a little bit personal, sort of um, really unpack some of this. But I think what, one of the things that's becoming present right now amidst this pandemic, just on a sort of macro side, is I think the fallacy of individuality, which is commensurate with what you're sharing around sort of the lone wolf paradigm, is exactly that, right? It is in many ways a false construct. Like we have been tribal, we have been interdependent. We, you know, we've, we're being shown now that literally one person's breath on one side of the world can impact every other person <laughs> on the planet. So I think this, this, and I, you know, there's an interesting article, if you haven't read it yet, uh, and I know you're from Canada, but by Wade Davis, the anthropologist up in British Columbia, yeah. around the, the potential end of American exceptionalism and empire. And without getting into the whole article, one of the thought, things that I thought was interesting from an anthropological perspective that he addresses is this notion of the fallacy of individuality. And I think that that's mm. most acute in the context of men and this kind of false uh, kind of false identity that's been propagated around this city of a hill, but in the, in, in the, in the form of, of manhood and manning up, if you will, and this idea of like grin and bear it, which is still fairly pervasive in our culture. And one of the things that I've seen on a personal level, just to make it sort of vulnerable and real is, you know, when I had moved out to uh, Oakland, uh, which is which is before I kind of initiated some of my deep men's work. And I had had the great pleasure of studying, which, which we talked about a little bit in, on your show with a traditional healer. And in a, in a, in a, in a context where there was no, there was no word for individuality and there was no word mm. for pri privacy. So yeah. when one person fell out of balance or into dis-ease, it was the role of the community to bring them back into balance because they were seen as inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. There was no individual. It was only the integrity of the tribe, the integrity of the collective. And when I uh, moved to California with my girlfriend at the time, left everything behind without going to great narrative, she cheated on me. And, I, and my, the way I dealt with it, which I think the way men, many men are dealing with quarantine or many men are dealing with any of the traumas or challenges they face is I drank a lot of beer. I, at the time, I smoked a lot of pot. I basically tried to do anything I could to numb myself. And that was when my father said, you know what? And he banded together. He was one of the, the earliest men to do what was called the Mankind Project at that time called the New Warrior Training. But it was uh, an early, in the early 80s, it was a way in which, uh, you know, men got together and sort of created this processes of individuation to help men move through their shadow and mm -hmm. actually create this process of individuation, right? Which tribal cultures and societies have had since time immemorial when a boy would move into, into manhood. And so for me doing that deep work, which, you know, didn't end. It was actually quite analogous in many ways to the work you and I did together uh, in, in, uh, up in Oregon. Mm -hmm. But it was that moving into the shadow in a collective that was so profoundly healing. And then for me, actually, the, the medicine wasn't just in the ecstasies of that, you know, of that descent into shadow and then ascent into a new reality, 
but the integration that was available in connecting with my integration group, this, this group of five men that I did for four years, mm. week in, week out, from the moment of that weekend until a sea change, which led me to Columbia and grad school and a whole you know, global citizen and a whole new vision of reality, which was theoretically impossible for me when I was in that traumatized, you know, beer drinking kind of mode. So one of the things I'd love to delve deeply into with you is, you know, there are resources, I think a lot, you know, I was actually doing a contrast session yesterday with Max Lugavere, and he's just reading David Data's, you know, Way of the Superior Man. I'd love to get your, your sort of take on that. But, but also, I think one of the things that's becoming more prevalent is more men are kind of uncovering some of these new ways and possibilities of being. But oftentimes, you know, the intellectual downloading is different from the embodying. And mm -hmm. for me, at least, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm guessing with you, but I'd love your perspective. You know, there's a difference between intellectually internalizing concepts and then actually actualizing them in a group of men and moving through and doing that shadow work and creating a new identity, creating a new reality in that collective. Uh, and we'll go into tribal, you know, the, our tribal identity later, but what's your sense of how we as men can effectively move through when we have this, whether it be a collective or individual shadow moment, how do we, how do we start to think about the shadow and how can we move mm. through that shadow work such that we can start to individuate a new aspect of ourselves? Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty big question. I think what I would say is that <clears throat> what we're talking about is initiation, right? Initiation, as individuals. And I think the, the, the process of initiation has largely been carved out of our society as we, as we really um, advance forward collectively this, this myth of separation, right? This, this ideology that seems to be quite prevalent. And I think there's, there's a great quote by Robert Bly where he says something to the tune of, we, we don't value initiation any longer because we can't imagine invisible gifts anymore. Hmm. And I think that's really a, a, a potent phrase, right? Invisible gifts. And that we as, as men are some ways, in many ways, disconnected from our own invisible gifts, right? This soul level, this um, deeper understanding, this intuitive level. And, and we, we grow up in cultures and societies and family systems and, and on teams, sport teams, where we are uh, valued and, and really praised for our ability to perform. And we become these performance-based creatures. And, and our our, our ability to perform is highly over-indexed, right? Our rational mind is highly over-indexed. And so we know this one realm really well, right? We know the realm of intellectualization, of rationalization, of, of really being analytical. And that's the realm that we cling to as men. And I, there's a great quote by Einstein uh, who, who said um, something, something to the tune, uh, the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've created a culture that has forgotten the gift and honored the servant, right? And so that sort of says it all to me that we as men have created these lives that is predicated on the rational mind, but your rational mind can get easily hijacked by the unconscious, by your shadow. And so let's, let's talk about the shadow, right? So the shadow is the aspect of your psyche 
that is sort of the refuse bin, the, the proverbial garbage bin within your unconscious mind where you store all the shit that you don't like about yourself, right? So all the different parts of, of your life, you know, the, your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, um, the things that you don't want other people to know about you, the things that have happened to you that you don't want people to know, the things that you've done that you don't want people to know, your inner critic, your victimhood, all of that just gets shoved deep into the unconscious mind, into the shadow. And that shadow is the part of you that is a, a beautiful uh, material within your unconscious that is wanting to be expressed, that is wanting to be integrated into your, into your consciousness. And yet, in our, again, in our society, um, we largely don't, don't talk about that, right? We don't want anything to look ugly or messy or out of place, right? And we, we really value men that have their shit together, you know, and have direction. And God forbid a man, ha you know, a man has a year or two of his life where he's just a fucking disaster, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> right? and it's like, oh my God, you, 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 oh, you're, you're 24 and your life's a mess? Like, oh shit, like poor you, right? But, and so a lot of men are lacking this initiation of being able to go into their own psychological depths in a, in a container mm -hmm. with other men where they are able to face the abuse that they've experienced, the neglect, the abandonment, the, the, the bullying, right? Or the failures, maybe the abuse that they've passed on to other people. And so this, uh, this shadow material that, res that resides within our unconscious mind needs to be worked with. And we need to be taught how to work with it in order to integrate it into our consciousness. So the shadow, again, is, is comp comprised of many different components, one of which is the inner critic. So many people are, are sort of at war with themselves, right? I work with a lot of men who, uh, if, you, if you could hear their inner dialogue, you would say that they are abusive, right? You would hear an individual who is really self-harming, self-shaming, self-deprecating, uh, and really going to war with themselves and sabotaging themselves. And they're fighting an inner battle that nobody really knows about. And so part of this work, and again, in, uh, in indigenous cultures and ancient tribes and cultures, there was an alchemical process where we started to work with these materials and bring them into the conscious, right? Bring them into our, uh, our, our felt embodied experience. And it's not something that we would just intellectualize and say, oh yeah, you know, like my dad, you know, he was a verbally abusive and he, he beat me sometimes. And so I know that that fucked me up. Um, and so I can be, I can be conscious of that. And it's like, well, that's, that's not actually it, right? That's, again, that's the rational mind trying to make sense of something that happened to you rather than the intuitive process of starting to integrate that into your being and letting that shape you and your life and your relationships. So they're very different processes. So um, yeah, maybe I'll just pause there because I feel like I laid out a lot about the shadow and about initiation and, and some of these endeavors that we, that we can uh, embark on. And, and I can make that personal maybe if, if that is, is supportive. Yeah, I think I think it likely would be. I feel like what's coming what's coming up for me is uh, you know I was thinking a little bit about as you were speaking, almost the equivalent of of like a male version of a lot of what uh, Brene Brown talks about in terms of moving shame out of the depths, out of the shadow, mm -hmm. and 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 I and the other piece that was coming up for me as you talked about uh, this notion of tribal culture and indigenous cultures, which is something that you know I'm, I have a deep passion for, and we we talked a bit about on your show is that 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 
that process where it does definitively move out of the intellectual, out of the rational, as you're, as you're, as you're talking about and thinking about the context of, of tribe, right. And how Mm. challenges would traditionally have been faced collectively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had, uh, you know, interviewed, I don't know if you know, uh, Dr. Ryan, Chris Ryan, but, you know, he talked about the notion of, in Civilized to Death of like, you know, if we were hunters going out and I, for example, uh, took down uh, a buffalo and, uh, you know, we celebrated because that was now the food source for our, our, our entire collective, right? Uh, mm. You know, the women, the children, all of our, our, of our brothers, you actually, as my brother, would give me a hard time. You would take the piss because you would want to keep my ego low. Mm-hmm. And the credit would not be given to me. The credit would have been given to the elder in the village who had made the arrow. And mm-hmm. so there were, these, there were these mechanisms traditionally to keep this sort of egalitarian collective bonding in play. And that's mm-hmm. obviously not going into the depths of sort of the male individuation, right? But it is in part talking to that notion of tribal identity and the prioritization of the tribe, right? Like yeah. there are ways in which you would be ostracized, like the greatest, the greatest threat. And, and in some ways, I, I would say, argue still the greatest punishment is ostracization, right? It's like the scarlet letter or in our, in mm-hmm. our, in our I, I won't even call it criminal justice system because there's not, nothing just about it, but in our prison system, in our incarceration system, the greatest punishment is solitary confinement, which goes to that very point you talked about as it relates to aloneness. Mm-hmm. Um, but to keep it sort of grounded, one of the things that you, you discussed is this notion of, of how we move out of the rational. And I think so many men, myself included, to, to make it personal, you know, I, for years of my life, I would say the first 20 years of my life, my father, I only saw express anger one time in his entire life. Mm. And I didn't think I had anger in me. I was like, oh, I'm not, I don't, I just don't have anger. Like I, I, I don't identify with it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until that phase, which I had mentioned previously, when I started to do sort of, I started, it started before I did the men's, I did the men's work. And then I started to do expressive arts therapy. And then in the integration work, I started to, you know, and without, without betraying anyone else's story, but talking about my own, I mean, you, when you and I uh, did work together, I mean, I did some of the deepest work I've done, which was, you know, really confronting my fear of the loss of my father, who had mm-hmm. been my protector, who had been my my person. And I also did some really deep anger work around being cheated on and like mm-hmm. feeling betrayed, uh, both in, in professionally and personally. And it was only in dealing with that and actually expressing it in the most gnarly of ways, like in the messiest, like, you know, sloppiest of ways that I felt like I could start to own it within myself. And that was one of the beautiful aspects of, I think what you just shared is like, it's not actually trying to get rid of it. You know, Mm. like I think many of us look at it from a rational perspective of either, okay, I'm going to put that in a corner and not deal with it. I'm going to put it back in the box where it belongs in the shadows, but actually owning it, taking it out of the shadow, if you will, and then integrating it and having it become part of our, who we are. Right. Yeah. And, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, either from a personal perspective or, or what you've seen in terms of like, for those listening, all of us have shit, all of us mm-hmm. have, whether it be abuse, whether it be things that we feel shameful for, you know, men, you know, maybe, maybe you've lied or you've cheated or you've stolen or all the above, you know, I mean, many of us have done things that we're not proud of. How does one start to, instead of repress that and perpetuate likely the, the aspect of that, that is unhealthy, how does one start to 
for lack of, you know, they say in medicine work, get well, you know, how do you, how do you start to purge and get well? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, such a good uh, question. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll preface the story I'm about to tell with, I believe it's the words of, of Francis, Francis Weller, who's a really great depth psychologist. And he says, your, your redemption is built upon your ability to own all that you've rejected. Mm. And so that, that is in essence what my story is. You know, I, I grew up between two families. I had two identical families, sort of a weird family system, family of origin, uh, where my parents got divorced when I was three, they married other people. Um, they both, they both got married when I was six. They both had a daughter when I was seven and then they both had a son when I was 10 and 11. And so I, I went back and forth between these two systems that were on paper identical, but the players were very different. And so I was constantly in a state of seeing dichotomy and in constantly in a state of seeing different differentiation, right? So my dad and my stepdad were complete opposites. And as a child, I didn't know how to how to merge those two parts together, right? So, you know, I saw a father who was very creative, you know, uh, very, very passionate about music, worked for the government, um, you know, hadn't really sort of like pursued in some ways what he really desired, but was just a beautiful human being, right? Very charismatic, everybody loved him. And then, but I grew up with a stepfather who was very opposite that, engineer, hyper analytical, very compartmentalized, you know, not a, not a lot of emotional acuity, um, but very invested in my life and, and very connected. And so I, I always lived in this space of duality, right? Of seeing duality. And that started to permeate into my relationships where at a very young age, I would have these wonderfully connected relationships, um, but would be hyper, uh, hyper, um, uh, um, like really a lot of infidelity you know, a lot of infidelity. And so I'd get into these long-term relationships where I was, you know, in love with this person and they thought we were having a great relationship, but behind the scenes, I was cheating constantly in every way, shape or form. And that infidelity was, was coming out of this, you know, many different parts of me that didn't feel good enough and that had built my own worth and validation off of my ability to, uh, to conquer and be hypersexual. And so a lot of my shadow was very sexualized. You know, there's a lot of um, a lot of pain that was in there, but there was also a lot of validation. And so, um, and and that amplified and amplified and amplified over the years until finally, you know, in this sort of Hollywood-esque style moment where um, the woman that I was dating at the time had found out, had found photos of this woman that that I had been sort of having an affair with and sleeping with. Uh, she she found it. She called me out. I refused. You know, I tried to talk my way out of it as I as I normally would, um, because before that, the evidence that I had was I could pretty much talk my way out of anything. Uh, and and she she left for a little while and said, when you're ready to talk about it, you know, we can we can sit down and and maybe we can work through this. But you need to figure your shit out, basically. And the woman that I had been seeing on the side showed up to our place. And I set a boundary and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I don't want to have this relationship anymore. And I, you know, I want to, I want to find a sense of completion. I want to find a sense of wholeness and I'm tired of living this dual life. This has been going on in my life for, you know, over a decade. And so she accepted that. And I decided I was going to drive her home, drive her back to her place. So we get in the car, it's snowing outside and there's no one in the streets. It's like nine, nine thirty at night, driving through the streets, get to a red light 
stopped at the red light. It's quiet in the car. We haven't said a word to each other because you know, obviously she's not happy with the fact that I'm not going to leave my girlfriend for her. Uh, and across the street walks my girlfriend and looks into the car and sees me and this other woman. And it was sort of like the nail in the coffin. And I could see in that moment the, the, the pain you know, that, I, that I really caused that I, that I couldn't escape from. And so in, in that moment, it was like there was this pulling out of the shadow, right? There was this, I couldn't hide this, this darkness that was, had been behind the scenes for so long that friends didn't know about, family didn't know about, nobody really knew about. And so it was sort of like this collapse moment and it was the descent into darkness. You know, it was the descent into the cave that, that we often hear psychologists and storytellers talk about. Um, and it was probably about two and a half years of me working on that with a mentor of mine who was an, an expert in, in Jungian psychology in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, connecting with friends, starting to tell the men in my life what was going on. And I think one of the most surprising pieces was that when I started to connect with the men in my life and share these hidden parts of myself, right? Shared these, these painful, shameful, uh, hidden parts of myself, what was revealed was how much they had also been hiding. And one of the first conversations that I had was with a close friend of mine where, you know, I sat down and I told him everything that had been happening. And I said, you know, I, I can't, I can't hide this any longer. And this is, by the way, I, I tried to hide. I actually lived out of the back of my car for about three weeks uh, just because I was so fucking stubborn and didn't want people to know and didn't want people to, to see the other part of me, you know, this, this dualistic nature to who I had been because I had created this beautiful facade of this successful guy with the motorcycles and the Mustangs and the great relationship and the career that took me around the world. And, you know, the, the whole thing, but behind the scenes, there was a very different character that was, that was pulling some of the strings. And so I sat down with a friend of mine and sort of told him about this, this other side to me, the things that I had been hiding and the things that I was ashamed of. And by the, the end of a conversation, he you know, just broke down and, uh, and I asked him what was going on. And he proceeded to tell me that a month and a half before this conversation, he had tried to hang himself. He had tried to take his own life. And I think it was in that moment where I really was struck by the reality that, that so many of us are living, that we are so separate. And, and I was really left with the question of how do I know so much about you? How can I know what you like to drink, music you like to listen to, the things you like to do, the TV shows you like to watch, and not know probably arguably the most important part of you, which is the, the part that has been hidden and, and shamed and, and felt like it couldn't come forward, and vice versa. And so it really sort of put me on this, on this mission of being able to, to create places and spaces and conversations where we can safely and securely and in a, in a, in a strong way, start to bring these parts forward for them to be seen, for them to be healed. Um, because as, as we're talking about in, in tribal ways and indigenous ways, grief and shame and pain was always processed in a group environment. It was never something that you were meant to go home with and close your bedroom door or lock yourself in the closet or sit in the bathroom tub and, and cry alone about. It was something that you were meant to be held with. It was something that you were meant to, to be witnessed with, that your pain was meant to be witnessed. It was never meant to be something that we, that we surgically removed from society. 
And so as I, as I did my work, as I started to integrate this, this part through conversations with friends, through work with an incredibly wise mentor of mine who uh, I called him my little white Yoda. He, at the time, um, I was in my late 20s and he was, he was in his early 80s. And he was just this in- incredible human being that, that, that truly um, helped to guide my life and, and, and helped me uh, through the darkness, you know, almost like a guide through the cave uh, to integrate some of those pieces. And, and when I came out the other side, um, not only did I have a more whole sense of being, but I started to understand the value in integrating some of these parts of our mind, of our psyche, of our soul, of our, of our lives into our everyday conversations with people who have earned it, right? As you mentioned, Brene Brown before, right? Vulnerability is earned. I think that's something that she says constantly. And we need to cultivate relationships with people where they earn our vulnerability and we do the hard work of bringing these parts forward that we would normally never talk about because if we don't they will run and ruin our lives i guarantee you it's just it's just a psychological fact and so we have to learn how to work with uh you know again with with these with these shadow parts and these shadow materials that are that are within us i love that what for those who may be listening uh and first of all thank you for sharing your personal story uh and and a vulnerable story and and owning aspects of your own shadow Mm -hmm. i I always feel like especially in men's work in my experience was interesting i was so bursting at the seams when we sat down uh i don't know if you remember our weekend i would normally i would like always wait to like let you and i burst (laughs) at this i went first and burst it out and i was fucking vulnerable and it was like i remember being like i was like i was ready to pop but I feel like when we do share that uh, vulnerably and courageously, it, it, it allows a space where other people feel safe to, to do that themselves. And, mm. and I think with men especially, you know, there's such a, uh, you know, bravado. I remember, you know, I remember actually interviewing uh, Laird Hamilton, who I feel like is such like an alpha male, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, I mean, he's like, he's a, he's a boss. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, Chopu and the millennium wave, which actually was just like two days ago. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this epicness of courage. Um, but it was interesting because one of the great reveals of that show was he was like, you know, when he's in, in some ways, his great professional success of him being on the magazine for surfing this epic wave, he actually acknowledged that that was actually one of the more challenging parts in his relationship with his wife. Mm. And it was in that vulnerability, I feel like actually the great, the great power of that interview came out. And then we started to get vulnerable. And it was like, it's interesting how we can go from identifying and relating as men in the like, bravado success to then going into the more vulnerable and how that opens up space. Can I, I can I speak to that part? Yeah, please. And then I, and then I have a follow-up question. Please do. Yeah. So, so I talk a lot about how we as men or, you know, just people that identify as being more masculine in, in essence need to move from challenge from competition based relationships to challenge based relationships. Mm. And that, that part of this, male separation that we experience growing up is that we are in competition with other men. You know, if you listen to, I mean, if I listen to conversations that I had with my buddies uh, growing up, you know, in central Alberta, which is like the Texas of Canada, right? Lots of oil, lots of big trucks, you know, lots of guns, lots of hockey, uh, you know, minus 30 half the time. Uh, A lot of those conversations are just competition based, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of how much we earn, how much we're worth, how much we're able to lift, you know, it's, it's, 
it's competition based. And with that comes an invulnerability because you do not want to share your weakness with people that you uh, consciously or unconsciously perceive yourself to be in competition with, right? Perceive yourself to be judged by. And so we, we as men specifically need to start to cultivate these challenge based relationships where you can still compete with a man, right? You can still, you know, razz one another and, and have that competitive edge, but it's more about calling one another forward. And this is my own terminology, calling one another forward into our capacities, into our capabilities as a man, as a husband, as a business owner, as a father, as a friend, and to hold one another accountable to that. And there is a strength in that, right? It's why the saying iron sharpens iron is so relevant. And that's what it means, right? It's not iron competing against iron, right? And that's, that's the way that we've sort of built a lot of our masculine relationships. So I just wanted to throw that out because it's very important for a lot of men who, when they get real about this, they look around and they realize that in almost every way, they're in competition with the men in their lives and that they don't really have a lot of masculine friendships where they are challenged. And so they're seeking that validation. They're seeking that challenge from the women in their life. Mm-hmm. And, and while that is wonderful and formative and, and you can have wonderful relationships with women in your life, there is something about having a man standing in front of you, challenging you to live up to your potential, to your capacities that you have set for yourself. Yeah, that distinction is actually exactly where I wanted to go. So I love that you you articulated it so beautifully uh, because I feel that, you know, say a man listening right now, maybe like this sounds great, but like, how do I, you know, that's not the mm-hmm. men in my life, right? Like, and, you know, we know, you know, there's great Harvard research that demonstrates the greatest corollary to your long-term health and happiness. The single greatest corollary is the quality of your long-term relationships and mm-hmm. the caliber of the... Uh, and actually that study, which is, I think, part of why it's flawed, but also part of why it's, it's also very relevant to this conversation was all a group of men, uh, yeah. you know, they followed, uh, you know, across the, the course of their lives. Um, but I think to that point, you know, many men, because they grow up in that town in Alberta or in, you know, frankly, most towns around the world at this point in time, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking a lot as you were talking about, I just watched the last dance with Michael Jordan and I grew Mm. up in Chicago and he was my, he was my hero. And it was interesting in the documentary to just see, which I think many people have probably watched now, the degree to which he embodied that, uh, that competitive spirit. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever seen anyone more competitive. Mm -mm. Um, (laughs) and and, and obviously there's beauty to that. Uh, and, and I was, I felt the exaltation of the beauty of him in art, artistic motion and, and his, his, him living in his edge and, and the degree to which he drove himself. But there's also a shadow side of that. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's interesting the degree to which that competition can also shatter relationships. I won't mention names, but there's a very well-known figure who was a very good friend of mine. And I remember I was actually relating to a woman and he came up to me and he challenged me to a game of Connect Four, which seems so innocuous. And then he proceeded to want to dominate me like game in, game out in front of her on this, mm-hmm. in this Connect Four. And I was like, whoa, this, the spirit, the energy of this is just kind of strange, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there are men who feel very much identified with being on top in the context of competition. And I feel like the shadow aspect of that collectively 
is is even more fueled for example by social media right like mm. and all of us including myself like i'll get caught in it sometimes and luckily i have a pretty decent self-regulatory mechanism but you know in this competition game where it's like oh you know good male friends of mine who have millions of followers and like in the highlight reel of this artificial construct of the life that they're you know presenting uh you know it looks like wow they're they're living life way better than me um and so to distill this down how does one move if you're listening and you're living in society as we know it which perpetuates and fuels this sense of competition culture um how does one start to move and consider the men that they are surrounding themselves with and how to find if you will that healthy edge that can Mm. be embodied in I i would describe that uh you know is in, in, in some ways, like what we found with each other in our way of relating, you know, and we didn't necessarily know each other, but I knew that from, from the context of our, of our, of our weekend together, I could relate to you in a way where I could share my shadow. I could be challenged, but I would, it would be challenged from a place of my best interest Mm -hmm. as opposed to me, as opposed to a need to dominate or one up, which I feel mm-hmm. like is often the context in the way men relate. There's a mm-hmm. subtle sort of one-upsmanship. So do you have any thoughts? And I know, you know, part of this, you probably have many thoughts, but mm-hmm. around how men can start to find other men that serve them in being the exemplification of their highest. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the word that you use there is, is the, is the correct word, right? Which is finding men who serve you as well, you know, as you being in service to them. Mm. Um, But I I do want to say a a few, a few specific things, right? So one, find men who are willing, capable, and able to hear your pain, you know, to hear your shit, not in a way where, they're going to let you sit there and, and, you know, just complain constantly because that doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. But men who are, are willing to say, you know, I've heard you talk about this three or four times now. You're, you know, you're unhappy about your sex life with your wife. Why haven't you had the conversation yet? When are you going to have it? Right. And, and to be direct. I think, I think Tim Ferriss says it best where success is equal to the amount of uncomfortable conversations that you're willing to have. And I mean, there are a lot of men and women who are terrified of uncomfortable conversations, right? I mean, we live in a society where, and and I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it out there where, you know, we are expected to put a trigger warning out in certain spaces that we don't hurt people's feelings. And it's like, what we know about success, what we know about progress, what we know about integration, what we know about working with our own pain is that some of it's not comfortable. Some of it is triggering. And, and that, that it's our responsibility, it's part of our growth to be able to lean into those spaces. So find men that are willing to do that, get in those environments, whether it's something like the Mankind Project, whether it's the you know, Man Talks, we have an online uh, men's group called the Alliance. We have hundreds of men from around the world that are in that. Um, so get in those environments where men are going to challenge you. The, the next thing that I would say is really look at your relationship to discipline. Discipline for most men is a punishment and they treat it as accordingly. So their morning habits are out of, out of order and they punish themselves. Their relationships aren't what they want them to be and they punish themselves or they punish their partner or they punish their kids or their friends, whoever they're in relationship with. So discipline is not a punishment. 
uh, it, discipline is a practice. It's something that we need to cultivate. It is something that we need to build rituals around so that it is, it is something that moves out of this tactical space and into something. I mean, it can be in a tactical space. If you're hyper-masculine and you're, you love somebody like Jocko Willings, maybe that works for you, right? Where it's just like, I want to get up at 4.30 every single morning and post my watch on Instagram to prove that I've gotten my ass out of bed at 4.30 in the morning in the gym. Okay, maybe that form of, of disciplined practice and ritual is what works for you. Maybe that's what like ignites that fire within the belly. Uh, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's something a little bit different. Maybe you want a different type of practice. But either way, to aim for discipline as a practice where it's something that you can fail at. Because for most men, what's happening in their life is that there's no room for failure, none. And as soon as that failure shows up, they are verbally and emotionally and physically self-abusing, right? They won't get up and do their morning routine. And that becomes the shame later on that day that becomes the reason for them to have an extra beer or smoke more weed or eat the extra bag of chips, right? And so, uh, so figure out your relationship to discipline. And, and lastly, <laughs> lastly the, the piece that I would say is be okay with getting defeated, right? A man grows by being defeated constantly by, by greater obstacles than the ones that he's conquered before, by, by learning from the travesties, from the failures, from the experiences that you would normally not want to experience. And so I, I would say get around men who are going to support you when you are defeated, right? Who are going to say like, good work. You got knocked the hell out. <laughs> let me help you back up, right? Like you failed at the business. You made the wrong decision. Okay. Let, let's help you learn from this decision. So finding those types of quality individuals that you can share those things with, and those men are out there, right? Those men are absolutely unequivocally out there. So start to search for them, prioritize that. And and, and lastly, stop waiting for somebody to come save you. I think that's the other thing. I, I see a lot of um, you know, I think it's incorrectly labeled. I think a lot of people would say that there's a lot of like hyper feminized men where they're, they're sort of very, they have very feminine qualities. I don't think that's it. I think it's more that there are, that there are men who are in their victim, mm -hmm. you know, that they are very attached to blaming dad, blaming mom, blaming people around them and and holding on to things rather than sharing them and, and doing the hard work to move through them so get your emotional and physical and mental hands dirty right really be really be willing to get defeated and knocked down because it's not a a single rise to the top mm. well said i feel like the victim aspect is something we should we should touch on a little bit because <laughs> i i feel like there's a pervasiveness in our culture. And I, you know, there's been phases in my life where I've definitely hung out in the victim town, you know? Mm, um, but, but this idea of how does one move into a place of 100% responsibility? Because I think that that distinction uh, goes a little bit to bring this kind of full circle, right? Where it's like, this notion of being at cause versus being at effect. Like right now, all of us are at effect to a virus that mm. is changing our worldview, changing the landscape, changing the way many of us live our lives. You know, many people have lost their livelihoods. Now, we can't change that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
but we can change our response in how we show up to it, right? So it's like that notion of, are we at effect or that, yes, we are at effect, but can we be at cause in how we show up in that context and take full responsibility? And there will be some who will absolutely thrive and utilize this time and crush it, start, mm -hmm. you know, use the extra time to, to as, as sort of being in the gym to, to, to be the next best version of themselves, whether it be personally, professionally, et cetera. Um, and I feel like, you know, two, you know, two people can look at the very same situation so fundamentally differently, but what do you feel like are the tenants to that notion of self-responsibility? How does one start to move away from that that living at effect, that living as a victim and start to move into the context of being a cause in life. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. So one of the things that we, we talk quite about, uh, quite a bit about within, within man talks is this idea of cultivating self-leadership mm. and, and what it takes to cultivate self-leadership. And I think I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach on this um, by just saying, I'll, I'll put something out there and then I'll unpack it. Uh, your pain, your pain has its own intelligence and is constantly working on you, right? So your, your pain is trying to be heard and understood by you. And so the more that you neglect it, the more that you abandon it, the more that it's going to try and, and seek ways to sabotage you so that you can witness it, mm. right? So all the shit that you don't want to deal with in your life, guess what? You're going to have to deal with it at some point, period. And if you don't, it's going to deal with you. And it's probably going to deal with you in a way that you don't fucking want. So deal with it, right? Start to really like, I mean, I hate the saying, right? Like pull, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's like, you can't even do that, right? So, so first, first off, like, don't worry about that. But, but start to realize that part of the initiatory work, part of the initial work is making a conscious decision that you are going to face and understand and seek to learn from your wounds, your pain. Your pain has a purpose. And you cannot, absolutely cannot, enact powerful self-leadership from a place of trying to ignore your pain or your wounds or your hurt. It will not work. You will pass it on to other people. You will pass it on to your, your partner, your kids, your friends, whoever it is. And you will continue to play the victim. The victim is just a manifestation of your pain trying to be heard. That's all it is, right? And, and, it's, and it's doing so by trying to pass it on to other people. It's doing so by saying, oh, that person hurt me. Or, oh, that person did this to me. Or, oh, you know, whatever the case may be. It's trying to be heard. It's trying to be witnessed. And, and it's realized, your victim has realized that you're not listening, right? You're not listening to it. So how do we start to develop a sense of self-leadership? We make a commitment to ourselves and we decide to start to deal with the parts of ourselves that, uh, that are hurting, right? Or maybe have been hurting. And it's, it's unsexy, right? It's not what most people want to hear. <laughs> like it truly is. It's like whenever people ask me like, well, how do you cultivate self-leadership? I'm usually like, deal with your shit. And they're like, really? Mm -hmm. That's, that's, well, what about this? Just like, give me like the top three things I need to do in my morning routine. Like, is it just breath work? Is it just meditation? It's like, yeah. I mean, if you're using breath work and meditation to face your own shit, then yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right. So that's, that's part one. Um, because the, the reality is that nothing that means something to you does well when neglected, mm. right? Nothing that's meaningful to you does well when it's neglected. 
And, and so if you really want to start to learn how to lead yourself more effectively, start to cultivate a deep understanding of what is meaningful to you. What, is, what do you really give a shit about? What's worth fighting for in your life? What's worth getting out of bed for uh, every single morning? and doing your rituals and doing your routines, right? Committing to yoga, going to the gym in the morning or practicing breath work. You have to find a sense of why. I know it's a basic thing and Simon Sinek has sort of like beat that horse to death, but you really do have to start with a sense of why. And maybe if you have no idea what your sense of why is, you start with the purpose and the why of dealing with the shit that you don't want to look at. And it's the uncomfortable place that most people don't want to start. But if you are lost and you're listening to this, I guarantee you it's probably where you need to begin. So those are a few different parts. Then I would say start to build structure within your life. Start to build a little bit of order within your life where you can begin to have a reclamation of self-trust, right? Leadership is the ability to influence and our ability to influence ourselves, to understand what our no's are and what our yeses are. And again, that's a little bit of a basic thing, but where most people are collapsing in their own sense of leadership is that they're saying yes to all the wrong things, right? They're saying, they're saying yes to things that they, products that they don't want to buy, relationships that they don't want to be in, right? Nobody has come along and taught them the art of saying no. And it's something so simple and yet so profound. So get uncomfortable, start to say no. We just did this challenge in the group where I had you know, 300 men go out and, and do a month of saying no. And the results were truly profound. The one guy was like, I actually think this saved my marriage. Like I realized I've never said no to my wife in 20 years. You know, it's like, okay, all right, well, there, there you go. So those are some of the starting points that I would say, because those, are, those take rigor. You know, they, they take attention, they take um, dedication and passion, and they also take love. You know, they, they take a, a, a sort of nurturing that, that we need to develop. And, and it's coming at it from, from both places, both the, the hard edge of I'm going to commit to doing these things, right? And, and with a sense of reverence, right? Reverence being the, the energy of rigor, of dedication and of love and compassion. And I think when we can approach things as men with reverence, we can approach things from a grounded, holistic place. Beautifully said. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Connor. Uh, we're going to wrap this up, but I, I just have a couple final questions. Um, if you, for those listening who just sort of were like, okay, I had some big aha moments. Do you have, I generally like to ask sort of, two to three, whether it be books, communities, resources that men can tap into to sort of get started or continue their journey. Three, three books or communities or movies, whatever it may be that, that people can just sort of tap into to further their, their journey. Mm, one, of my, one of my all-time favorite books is by Alan Watts. It's called The Wisdom of Insecurities. Mm. Um, very, very powerful book. You know, some of it's esoteric and existential because it's, it's Alan Watts and that's who he is. Um, but it's a really profound book it, just in the sense that it teaches you the value of starting to learn from your insecurities, starting to listen to them rather than trying to build a life around avoiding them. So that's, that's one thing that I would say. 
Um, I mean, I, you know, obviously for, for the guys out there, you could check out the man talks Alliance. I'm just going to, I was going to put it out there. Um, cause I, I believe in it. I believe it's a powerful community. Um, if you're wanting to learn more just about relationships, like I would say, follow my wife. She's one of the best, uh, at mindful MFT on Instagram. She's just one of the most profound. I've never met anybody that understands human relationships. Like she does. She's really, really powerful. Um, so that, that's a book. And then if you want to learn more about initiation, you could look at Francis Weller. He's a, he's a depth psychologist. Uh, he's got some really powerful work. Um, he's, he's quite wise and has been doing that work for a long time. And then finally, I would say definitely read Carl Jung um, and start with maybe something like Memories, Dreams, and Reflections um, or... Uh, uh, claiming a man's soul, I, I believe, is the other the other book that that's really really powerful. Uh, Reclaiming the man's soul, I, I think that's the other one. Beautiful, yeah, I love Jung. Um, where can people find you online if they want to delve deeper into your work? Uh, you can go to uh, connorbeaton.com, uh, or you can go to Instagram. I'm pretty active there at Man Talks. Um, the podcast lives there and everything, everything else that I do, I, I usually post on there. So that's, that's a good spot to connect with me and, and feel free to send me a DM. If you love this, if you hated this, if you just want to, you know, share one piece that really resonated with you, I, I would love to hear from you. Uh, final question. So I usually ask what your definition or your vision of a peak mind is, and you can answer that if you choose. However, I think in this context, I want to ask, and, and peak can be however you see peak. It doesn't have to be the conventional version of peak. What would your definition of a peak man be? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a good, it's a relevant question. I, I enjoy that. Um, I would say that a, a peak man is, is somebody who is endeavoring to, to action what we talked about today right? Somebody who is willing to look into their own darkness, you know, see and be a part of their own, their own healing. Um, and, and, and is, is someone who is contributing that out into the world, right? Initiation is not about us. That's the, that's the biggest misconception, right? Initiation is not about you. It's about you returning from that adventure from that dive into the cave and being of better, more complete, higher contribution to the community and the world around you. And so for me, a peak man is somebody who has embarked on that, whether it's somebody who's gone off and spent weeks in the jungle of Peru doing ayahuasca or somebody who has sat with indigenous people or somebody who is, you know, just willing to have the first conversation with a therapist or whatever the case may be and talk about childhood trauma, et cetera. That, that for me is a, is a peak man because we have enough men walking around with unconscious pain. Mm. Beautifully said, brother. Thank you for your time. I'm so grateful for it and uh, all the wisdom and insights that you shared. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Likewise. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Connor Beaton. I know that I did. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please let us know your feedback. You can tag at Mantalks, at Michael Trainer and let us know what you got from the episode. I'd greatly appreciate uh, any ratings and reviews over on iTunes. Um, it means the world to me. 
And if there's other shows or other guests you'd love to see on the show, please do send me a message. Um, again, I, I really am committed to bringing you guys world-class experts and bringing you tons of value in conversations that you will enjoy. I'm so grateful that you're part of this community. I'm so grateful for this audience, each and every one of you. So if there's ways in which I can be of value or guests you think would be really wonderful for the show, always feel free to uh, send me a message with who you're thinking about. And with that, thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Please go out there and live your inspired life.